Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. If you wander east from Soho to Covent Garden in central London, you will find the streets eerily deserted. For this is January 2021. We are in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. The network of thoroughfares and passages, little courtyards, all around Covent Garden, normally so bustling with tourists and Londoners out at theatres, eating and drinking, or shopping in the wonderful Inigo Jones-designed 17th and 18th century market buildings, are all elsewhere. If you'd been walking down these streets 45 years ago, in January 1976, you may have found it similarly deserted, though in a very different way and for very different reasons. For Covent Garden Market at that time, which had been for hundreds of years London's fruit and veg market, had recently been abandoned and all the market holders moved to a fancy new market down in Vauxhall, south of the river. So the old market, which we know and love so well, which very nearly was demolished, thank heaven it wasn't, would have felt rather deserted and gloomy and somewhat run down. But if you'd walked up to Neal Street, which runs north from the market, and started to walk down that narrow cobbled road, you might have noticed a knot of curious young people gathered excitedly outside one particular building on the left. And as you approached, if you were an older person, you might have been quite alarmed by the look of some of these young people. Spiky hair, brightly coloured hair, strange clothes in tatters with cuts in them and zips and slips, military bondage wear. They may have even have turned at you and snarled a bit, but they were just young kids out for fun, desperate to get into this building. It used to be a gay or transvestite club, but it had recently been taken over by two young groovers. It was rechristened the Roxy and it had become the venue for this growing scene of what was going to be called punk rock. Now, as you know, the Bureau of Lost Culture is dedicated to collecting, to broadcasting rare, half-remembered, lost stories from the underground, oral testimonies from the counterculture. And you can't really talk about counterculture without talking about youth culture and club culture. And today, in the first of a two-parter, I'm very pleased to welcome two guests who've been instrumental in London's club culture, in London's counterculture since those heady days on Neil Street. They actually met in a club when they were 16 in Streatham in South London 55 years ago to the very day that this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture was first broadcast on January the 17th. They've been a couple for all that time and they're still together. In the 1980s in Brixton in South London, they opened a club called The Fridge, which in its two incarnations flourished through the 80s, 90s and noughties, and many people considered to be one of the most groundbreaking clubs in the London club scene, with various innovations and inspirations that other clubs adopted. But we're going to talk about that club, The Fridge, with them on another occasion. Today we're here to talk about The Roxy, the club that opened on Neil Street in Covent Garden 45 years ago, a club which they opened, or a club which they took over and ran for 100 days, 100 nights, and a club where most of the bands who became famous in the punk scene played. 
They are Andrew Chesovsky and Susan Carrington. And first of all, I'm going to welcome Susan. Hello, Susan. Hello there, Stephen. Welcome to the Bureau, Susan. Um, before we get into punk and the Roxy and even the fridge and all that sort of stuff, counterculture, why don't we start off with you two? Um, you two have been together for a very long time. Um, why don't you tell us about that and how you met and how, how you stayed together all that time? It is rather a long time. Yes, we met in uh, 1966 on a mod night in a, a place called the Lacana on Streatham High Road. It's a, it was a, a dance hall and every Monday they had a mod night. So all the sort of young, sweet young things would all meet up. No alcohol is involved. And uh, I don't know, we used, I was still at school. I don't even know how I got to school the next day. And um, it was just the place to be at the time. And they had a revolving stage and they had a dream time uh, around about midnight. Or maybe 11. I think we had to be home by 12. What's the dream time? Put a spotlight on people dancing on the dance floor. And one of that spotlight hit me and Andrew. Um, our eyes met to the 16. And um, that was it, basically. So you'd not been eyeing him up for a while. That was um, that was the first time that you met. No, that very night. I think it was January the 17th, 1966, to be precise. <laughs> and then we went out clubbing to other places. Um, the Ram Jam, which was in Brixton, which was you then became the first fridge in the 80s. Uh, we went there on the opening night, August 6, 1966, with the animals. Um, and that was Stone's Throw from where Andrew lived in Brixton. Uh, I was a bus ride away, I think, on, in where I lived in Eastleigh Market, Woolworth. Right, so you two are proper Londoners, South Londoners, right? We are definitely South Londoners, without question. And you were both into that sort of bourgeoning mod scene? Well, it, not thoroughly into it. I wouldn't go that far. But we probably in those days would address towards that kind of thing. I mean, I used to make my own outfits, like um, mini skirts, che um, check, black and white check. I used to make a hat to match. And Andrew would have a suit made at Brixton Taylor for mohair, green shoes, pocket handkerchief to match, little goatee beard. Um, but we never did the scooter and, you know, bashing people up on Brighton Pier. It wasn't quite like that. It was purely fashion, music going to exciting, interesting places, colour, light, other people, just loved it. But I mean, that's that's youth culture, isn't it? I mean, that's what young people want to do. But what about London at that time? I mean, was it was London sort of swinging and super exciting and bright lights and all that? No, it was dark, bleak, miserable. Um, <laughs> we went to the worst schools in the world. I went to one at Elephant and Castle. We lived in a council flat in East Street Market, which I hated. Um, Andrew's family lived in a quite a nice house in Brixton. Got to remember before Brixton as it is now, and um, we were talking about um, lots of immigrants and council, well, Polish second generation. Poor, you know, it was poor. The market was pretty grim. So me and Andrew, when we met, we actually were both looking for colour, light, entertainment fun right and that becomes that sort of defines you and your working life in a way so we're going to come on to right with club life right so you are two young groovy well-dressed cool kids that's right so tell us what happens next i mean you know you you started to grow up you're sort of teenagers growing up together in the uh, late 60s 
was 16 when we met, 17, that's 66, I became 17 in March. So I was still at school. I think Andrew was doing temporary jobs here and there, but not really a proper job. Um, and then I went to teacher's training college, I think around about hmm, 70, I don't know, 68, whoops. Um, I didn't really want to teach. I just wanted not to go to work. Uh, I didn't want to be that working class girl pushing a pram ever. And so for always looking for something more interesting, basically, um, for what we were taught at school, we were supposed to be about. But it was really, we loved music. And it didn't have to be one. We've never been a slave to a particular type of music. Right. And I mean, you've been involved with lots of different types of music um, through your times. And of course, the first famous club that you were involved with, the Roxy, became very much associated with that sort of growing punk scene in London. So how did we get there from uh, late 60s? Me and Andrew moved into the house we still live in, albeit only half of it as a flat, in 1971. And I tried to do this domesticity, baking cakes, mousy hair, Laura Ashley, grim. I was at college with a person you probably know called John Cravine. John Cravine had a stall in Antiquarius called Acme Attractions. It became huge. Right. So that was the stall. Antiquarius was the sort of antiques market off uh, King's Road. And um, Acme Attractions was still selling sort of second-hand and adapted clothes like Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood, right? And then it obviously went on to become a really important part of that whole punk fashion scene. I love this quote from uh, from Boy George. We try the clothes on in Acme Attractions, fluffy fake fur jumpers with plastic see-through breast panels, rubber tops and trousers. I wanted plastic dungarees, but they looked horrible. I got my mum to copy the clothes, tight black T-shirts with zips across the nipples. I should open my own shop, she said. This stuff takes five minutes to make. <laughs> so you were there, right? I started working top part time before I got a job designing um, a cosmetic range called Tube Cosmetics. And you did the um, bookkeeping for them. And at that time, I think it was 74, 75, and lots of bands were forming. You had the Sex Pistols with Vivian. Vivian and Malcolm, and then you had um, uh, the, the Clash. Um, anyway, there was another band called um, Chelsea, and um, with the leasing of Jean October. And then um, Andrew managed them for a while. And the whole point that the Roxy came about was because Andrew was looking for a club that he could put the band on. Remember this whole thing about the anarchy tour? and punk was banned all over the world. So the Roxy, which was called Shagaramas, was an old rent boys club, sort of tranny rent boys, you know, rock and roll, sort of tiny venue in Neil Street, Covent Garden. And June October, who was a singer of Chelsea, used to go there and he knew the owners. And that's how that first booking came in December, which Andrew will fill you in. Ah, and here he is. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Stephen. Welcome to the Bureau. Andrew, um, Susan's given us this wonderful whirlwind tour through you guys meeting and your love of music, bright lights and London club scene and then on into the 70s, meeting people like McLaren and Westwood and Acme Attractions on the King's Road and all that scene that's going on. So take us on from there to the Roxy. When we started um, 
this, you know, say looking towards the, the newer generation of bands, which will be essentially the the Pistols as a sort of the breaking point. Um, we, because I was out of a job at the time, just never just had a looking, job. never had a proper job anyway. <laughs> but just sort of looking for things. So this was almost pre-punk. So we weren't drawn to punk because it didn't sort of exist. Didn't have a name, didn't it? it was just young bands, and you could see that they were different. Style had a different style, a different sound, energy, and a different look. Fabulous. And they were just that little bit younger than what was previously called the um, you know, the pub rock circuit. Yeah, and so there's the new music coming, as you said before, not called punk yet. But, of course, you were involved with uh, Malcolm Van and Westwood, who, of course, were you know themselves very much part of what was to happen next, right? So tell us about that. That's right. It was a pre-seen thing. We there was no consciousness about it, other than you were all trying to find an alternative path. You didn't know where it went or how it started, but you so you weren't uh, connected or with the current path, which is you know the post sort of glam rock period and post hippie period, etc. You weren't part of that. Although we lived through it, we personally enjoyed it all. Uh, we, we still wanted something new and fresh. Yeah, that's the whole point, something new and fresh. That's yeah. like exactly it. Sound like a, I sound like a vampire, don't I? <laughs> it's a makeup. That I they do, actually. Made it. She taught how to make up. <laughs> put a, a stake yeah. through her heart. Um, so how did how did this whole scene, the music and, um, you know, the style, the fashion, and, and uh, how did it become called punk? You know, what how did that come about? What we've seen over the years is that... Um, you have a, a sort of an alternative movement, and they all were from, you know, Bill yeah, Haley to you know to the Beatles to the, you know, hippies and whatever. They were in their early formative days. They were the alternative direction, and in time, they have to become mainstream. They have to be replaced. You know, that's a standard cycle. So, because this was all knocking around in seventy five, seventy six, it was. It was so it was proto punk, I suppose. It hadn't been coined until Caroline Coon, Melody Makers, and uh, sounds, uh, sounds, and they got hold of it. And and often the younger journalists would come and review it because they were given the shitty jobs. Obviously, who wants to come and see an unknown band in a smelly pub? Um, whereas the, the more well-established journalists were touring with Led Zeppelin. That's I, I, normal stuff. So was- they're the ones who came along and saw it in a new light and gave it this name punk right so that came afterwards really we interviewed barry kane who i know you guys know and he was working for record mirror you know just as a young man reviewing the music the pop uh, scene as it were and then he he got assigned to be the record mirrors punk correspondent and was sent off to see these bands and uh the bands that you mentioned then. In fact, I remember he said that the um, we saw the Stranglers, and his first thing was, is that these these are like these are older guys. They can play their instruments and stuff. They didn't seem like punks, but he was, uh, you know, monitoring that and writing about it and stuff. But he said, you know, that it was a very small thing, and of course, it only lasted a couple of years. So, uh, for you, how did you get, you know, much more involved? You've been doing the accounts for. Uh, McLaren and Westwood, and then you become artist manager. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a bit glamorous, actually. I, I'm not qualified. I never went to school or college. But you I, can I, add up. I'm not an accountant. I'm more just a bookkeeper, and I can add from 
one to 10 million quite easily. So I'm okay. And purely you became manager purely by chance. Wasn't no, it? It's no, all no. chance. It's all accident. Yeah. People actually rewrite their histories. You, no. Whole countries do it. Whole political parties do it. They rewrite the history that they want people to believe. They never tell the truth. So, you know, you have this sort of vague direction that you want to go in, but it's usually like a, a hundred doors in front of you. You choose one and it goes 10 feet in, you choose another one, it goes a mile in, and so on. And then eventually you find one that keeps on going, and you keep following right. it. Right, so um, nice metaphor. So these doors are opening, or you're opening them, and then you end up becoming manager for uh, Generation X and the Damned, right? Well, before, you know, I met um, the Damned, again, yeah, they were you, one of the faces. Generation X. They were sort of like the fate, some of the faces that were around the circuit, going to the Pistols concerts and the, the early Clash concerts and so on. So, again, there's only a, three or four thousand people involved in this. So you sort of vaguely knew each other because, you you know, it's not difficult to recognise someone from 50 people. And I, I was working actually for the boys' shop, sort of doing a bit of bookkeeping, not accountancy, just tidying things up. And it was a hot summer's day in Notting Hill where, where they had a second shop. The main was on King's Road. And... Uh, it was um, Brian James. Brian James and Chris Miller. And Rats Chris, Gavis. yeah, and Rats Gavis, who were just walking down the road. And they said, oh, hi, Andy. And we said, oh, hi. Just, you know, got to chatting what you're doing, etc." And they said they were rehearsing around the corner. And they said, oh, we're looking for a manager. And simply by association of hanging around and knowing Malcolm and Vivian and the pistols indirectly. We're never in each other's pockets in any shape or form. Uh and I thought, well, if Malcolm can do it, I'm sure I can. <laughs> Very good. Well, if Malcolm can do it, I'm sure I can. I'm sure he would have approved of that uh, that sort of attitude, wouldn't he? He did sort of redefine what it meant to be a music manager. I think I read something about he, he saw it in terms of music management, in terms of the audience, not the band, which was probably pretty radical at the time. And he certainly managed record companies that were involved with Sex Whistles very well. But you were involved with The Damned then as manager, but it was I think it was fairly brief, wasn't it? So um, how did it all how did it all come to an end? We met, was it April 76? That's right. And I did a bit of their manager and sorting things out. We got some dates, rehearsals, got um, tapes up to <clears throat> the record companies, etc. I managed to get uh, them on uh, the Marc de Mans, which is the first punk rock festival in south of France, put on by... Um, Mark Zermatt, I think. That's right. Anyway, see, so he asked us to go on this punk rock tour. Of course, I signed him up, and off we went. Now, when we got on the coach, it was quite clear there were no punks on the coach. But us, uh, you know, you had the Gorillas, uh, Dave Lowe. Edmonds, Nick Lowe, <laughs> Pink Fairies, um, somebody else. Anyway, so you got old pub pub bands marked uh, managed by jake riviera from stiff records so we the punks <laughs> sat at the back of the coach uh with with the journalists um Car caroline coon and john the ingham that's right and then you had a gap of about 10 rows of sheets and all the other bands were at the front with the, with a the coach driver Anyway, so on the way down, they, you know, they were taking speed and a beer and a cheap lager and all the rest of it. We stopped overnight, carried on, did the festival, and we we were on about 
one o'clock in the afternoon, quite early. There's just like 200 people in a 10,000 capacity bull ring. And they were already flying high. They'd all had their, you know, speed and everything. But it went on and they went through this set so fast because it was only a short set anyway. It lasted like 20 minutes. So they did it all again. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway. No one took any notes because there was nobody there. Didn't Cat uh, Sampson's almost... Um, he jumped off the, off of a, 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 a stack of, of um, speakers, I think, or something like that. <laughs> and Paul liked himself. He jumped onto a, literally a scaffold pole between his legs <laughs> and fell off that. Oh, he's, not, he's not going over that And yet. And Mark Zamati, who was the promoter, he, he was like shooting heroin by then. Because we went to him for some money. Because, you know, £30 is a lot of money. And he said, well, here's like five quid. I'll give you the rest later. And I'm thinking, oh, all right. And then they sacked you, right? No, well, well, so that was that. And and I got fed up with them. I really, they were running a mock. They were listening to reason. Got kicked out of oh, the hotel. We got thrown out of the hotel. So we got woken up at, at three in the morning because they wouldn't go to sleep because the speed was still working. Running up and down the hallways, knocking on doors. <laughs> I mean, stupid stuff. I managed to get a room way away from them. But the manager found me. Woke me up and said, "Get out!" Oh. But on the coach so, back... so we got on, so the coach picked us up at seven or eight o'clock in the morning. We had some managed to get them in, have some breakfast, got on the coach. They they sort of fell asleep, <clears throat> and then they woke up later in the afternoon, and it started off again. And they the day started when I say they, that was who was it? I think it was Chris and That's Captain, famous. yeah, who were is now mixing with. Uh, Jake Riviera. Jake Riviera, who was like a, a proper man. He would take speed and drink brandy. <laughs> so, 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 an hour later, they, they, they walk up and say, sorry, Andy, uh, we, we, we're going to, Jake's going to manage us now. Wow. Awesome. Oh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> right, so that was, that was quite brutal, I suppose. Um, but, I mean, it doesn't sound like, um, it didn't, doesn't sound like it, it bothered you that much, Andrew. I wasn't the right person for them. They wanted someone more like a Brian Grant. Is it Brian Grant, Led Zeppelin manager? Peter Grant. Peter Grant and Led Zeppelin. Yeah, this, you, know, you wanted someone like that who shouted and screamed and punched out record company executives. It wasn't <laughs> my style, but that's what they thought a manager should do. <laughs> well, I guess everybody was making it up at the time. That scene, I recently interviewed Pete Jenner, Peter Jenner, who, along with Andrew King, was... Uh, the person who discovered Pink Floyd in the 60s and became their first manager. Uh, but he'd been a lecturer at London School of Economics and, you know, he saw them playing and thought, you know, I've, a bit like you, you know, I want to get involved with this. He loved music. And he became the manager. And, but at some point, he obviously thought, I better find out what a music manager does. And he happened to be living with one of the musicians from the soft machine and they had a manager. So he asked him, you know, what does a manager do? And the guy said, ask Henry. And he was like, what? And he said, ask Henry. He said, whenever anybody asks us any questions, we just say, ask Henry. Henry is their manager. So if you want to know what a manager does, ask Henry. What does In reality, because you, know, you do have to think when you beat, you make it up as you go along. The record companies don't know what they're doing. Nobody knows what they're doing. All they're looking for is the next big hit so they can make a pile of money and get in the papers and be famous for discovering somebody. So it's a very simple thing. And you're either you make it or you don't. And, you know. Right. Right. So let's circle back to the Roxy. 
you've stumbled into artist management, um, as it were, and uh, you end up opening this club in, or running this club in Covent Garden. Now, Covent Garden, uh, for anybody who's not in London, is smack in the centre of town. It's also now a very kind of posh, boutique tourist market, basically. Lovely buildings and stuff, but it wasn't always like that, was Covent it? Garden was the thriving fruit and veg centre, flower centre of London, and, and therefore essentially of the UK. But that started to, uh, it got so big and so overcrowded and so inefficient, because don't forget it was built 300 years ago. I mean, in the Georgian period, um, that it was just wasn't big enough to cope with the demands of London. So in the late 60s, early 70s, there was this proposal to sort of move it. And this went on, as always, with political people, went on for years and years and years. And eventually they moved to um, Nine, Elms. Uh, Nine Elms, which is south of the river. Covent Garden was empty. All the shops, all the spaces, nothing was happening at all because nothing's that efficient. So it became a very desolate and dark area. Uh, they weren't prepared to let it out to anybody. Nobody really wanted it, but nothing was happening. This was pre the Covent Garden, you know now. Neal Street is really on the edge of uh, Covent Garden and on the edge of Soho. It's on that little boundary between the two almost. And in 70, I think it was 72 or 4, I can't remember exactly. Um, what's his name? Is it Neil Holt? John Holt. John, I think it's John Holt, reggae, English reggae star, not, not the Jamaican type, very sort of soft. Anyway, he made a pile of money, and I think he was gay, but don't hold it to that one. And he, with his success, he bought uh, what was it, a, a small common garden basement ground floor. I think it was a potato warehouse. So they, most of them were of some sort or another, and turned it into what was to be called Shagaramas which is named after a bay in Jamaica. Okay, so it's as simple as that. But it didn't last very long. I don't think it was his forte. Running a club, you're going to be dedicated. It's not a part-time job. And this is why a lot of rich people do it, but they can't keep it going. It became certainly a tranny gay sort of... Piano uh, bar. Piano type bar when it was taken over by the people who had it when we got involved, a barrister who dealt with licensing, he must have jumped in on it when either they went broke or something must have happened. He took over. He was gay. Obviously, his boyfriend was gay. And so that's the way it went. But he also uh, apparently represented sort of hardcore East End criminals. So you had this classic crossover of transvestite gay boys and criminals. <laughs> Some people get up on that, apparently. Apparently, yeah. So your idea was just to have one night there for Generation X as a one-off? Yeah, we had, all, all it was, my job was to, as a manager, to get them a record deal, get them work, get them touring, get them playing their music. That's my job. It was very simple. But because of the whole Anarchy Pistols tour fiasco, absolutely everybody was shitting a brick because they could lose their license if they put on a punk band. That was the threat. And no, obviously, no licensee pub club would want to lose their license. You're out of business overnight. And it's absolutely amazing, isn't it, thinking back on it, that one band, you know, the Pistols, and this tour, the Anarchy tour, could cause such a uproar in the media and nationally speaking, that like it would have that effect across venues. You know, they'd be actually afraid to put on these so-called punk bands uh, in case they got closed down. It was amazing, right? So. You had to find a way around that. We, through Gene, who was a rent boy at the time, Gene October from uh, 
Chelsea. From Chelsea. He he was he knew that the owners and he got a date for Chelsea during which was sometimes sort of late September, October time. It was pre the whole pistols fiasco. But by the time the fiasco had happened, Gene had actually sort of been kicked out of the band. And, and Tony James and Billy came to me and said, Look, we, we, we want to uh, get rid of Gene. What do you think? I said, Fine, I don't think he's right. And we should rearrange them and put Billy on the vocals. I said, That's the right thing to do. And brought in a new guitarist, which is Durwood. So, that, so they became Generation X. So I obviously went back to the owners of what was then Shagoramas and said, Look, it's not going to be Chelsea. Gene's not involved, but we still want to do it as Generation X. And of course, they said, sure, fine. Where's the money? Because that's all they were interested in. And it, uh, we discovered afterwards that they weren't bothered about losing the license because they didn't actually have one. But we didn't know that. But we didn't know we that, you see. They did because they, the, they knew about the law and, and they were barristers, etc. So, so they were happy. They got 150 quid cash. And we get to put the date on with Generation X, despite the so-called ban on punk. And even though we had never actually played, we were within that, you know, headline as it title because all the friends and fans of, of the band were all other members right. of all those other bands. Right. I mean, that's so scene start, isn't it, really? Before they've even got a name, as you said uh, earlier, before it's even called punk, it's, you've got a bunch of kids, basically, who are hanging out together and they're all in bands playing in each other's bands and coming to see each other's bands so if you put on a gig it's your mates turn up yeah and uh, then you go and see them and you know, then it starts to turn into something yeah that's right because you were just friends there's more friends than fans at that stage you just you know hey you know brian's playing down right should we go and see him yeah okay billy's playing you gonna see billy sure let's go and see billy and you did tend to know each other because don't forget the roxy only held officially i think it was 150 was the capacity but uh, because of the the pistols fiasco the whole idea of punk sort of grew up then and that's given out flyers there was this sort of increased uh, interest in that type of music and on the opening night, we fortunately had a sellout, so I achieved my job right, as a history in, history in the making. So, um, Susan, do you remember that first night? Of course I do. Well, tell us about it. I mean, what was it like? Oh, um, well, I think we were so worn out, to be quite honest. Because um, you've got to remember, um, when we actually hired what became the Roxy from the Shagoramas, there was no drink in there, no glasses, nothing. It was a complete tip, basically. So I had a job at the time and I had a company mini car. So we used to, we went to the um, East End for cash and carry and loaded up the car, mini car, with cans of beer and stuff. And um, they were building, there wasn't a stage there. So you'd have Billy Idol with a, trying to bang a nail in a piece of wood. That was funny. And then, and there's just a whole sort of team spirit, I'd, call, I'd say you call. And that was pretty, well, we were so, so surprised people actually came but as Andrew said it was all really word of mouth so they all sort of knew each other um and so it was quite quite electric and then the very next thing that you put on is uh Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers tell us about that Andrew how that came about when I was handing out flyers um around you know Soho Covent Garden I mean there's only a few places that you actually went and gave out flyers because you just knew that the right people were there from the the tiny little record shops or a pub or whatever 
And I was handing out flies for Generation X and went, was walking up and down Wardour Street. And the famous ship, which is where all the bands used to hang out prior to the marquee, I was walking past there and out on the street was um, Lee Black, Black Childers, who I didn't know, and Malcolm McLaren. And Malcolm, obviously, I knew. I said, oh, hi, Malcolm, how are things? What's going on? Usual stuff. And I said, you know, here's a flyer. Come and see them. And he said, great. And then Lee said, oh, what's that? I said, it's a new club we're putting on. It's called the... By that time, it was the Roxy, because, again, unbeknown to us, the, the Shagaramas people had also were in liquidation, had gone broke. So they had to change the name. So when we are, when we actually firm, firmed up the booking with the Flyers, it changed its name to the Roxy. Nothing to do with us. Again, pure chance. Yeah, but a, a lot better name than Shagaramas. I, I was more suited, but because it was only a a one-off gig to promote Gen X and nothing else, That's it fine. really didn't matter because we were going to do a gig and go. Um, so I met uh, Malcolm, and you know he did the usual looking down at you and uh, he Lee was there saying oh my what's this can we play there and I knew that by then that they were the, he was the manager of the um, Johnny Thunders and Heartbreakers I said well um yeah that's because that, I pretty was pretty sure that the owners would let me hire another date so I said to him uh, sure well let's try and work out a date and because in those days it was no texting you know no mobiles you had to phone. There's no other way to speak. Uh, so we did a date, tied it up in principle, and he, he said, I said, how much do you want? He said, £100. I said, I can't afford £100. You know, if everybody paid a sort of pound to get in, we just about covered the cost of the, the band, never mind the higher venue, which is £150, the PA, usual stuff. Um, and anyway, I've only got like four days to promote it because it was going to be after the date of the, um, the Generation X. So he said, well, look, he said, well, how much can you pay us? I said, well, 30 pounds. He said, all right, if you give me half now, which I put up. And so they went to uh, one of the first ATMs. <laughs> so I went there and picked up 15 pounds, went straight back to him, gave him the 15 and said, I'll see you next week. And that was the end of it. Very trusting for a manager. Well, well, like uh, because uh, but they were desperate to play because again, everybody was pushing this myth of you're not allowed to play. You're a punk man. You can't do this. You can't do that. But the idea of having the heartbreak was brilliant. So got them in and uh, booked them in, got some flyers done for that, gave those around over the next few days. Plus, my big thing was to, on the date that we had Generation X, which is the sole purpose of my job to promote them, which we had a full house, which were lucky 150-odd people, we were able to announce to them that, obviously, Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers are playing tomorrow night. And of course, there you've got 150 committed music music fans who know all about that. They would have they would have followed the whole fiasco of the tour and would have had a first chance to see the, the heartbreakers, which they never had before. So they came in, and of course, a full house, and it was terrific. It was one of the best stage, one of the best dates that we had. Right. I mean, you, so you're on a roll then, right? So um, you just kept kept going, right? Well, then, well, yeah. <laughs> see, then I'm thinking on my feet once again. Well. I've got Gen X on. That was a success. I, if I've got now I've got Johnny Thunders on, then why don't I put Gen X on again the following week So and use the um, Heartbreakers date to promote the next generation date? So that was the idea there, thinking, right, the more the merrier. We're getting closer to Christmas. <clears throat> and so we did the second date. 
and that worked again another full house because once again you know this underground new club it's uh, and it's putting on punk oh, you mustn't tell anybody but you just tell your friends and with susie and the banshees no, they they were supporting right so it really was uh, sort of history in the making i mean the amazing thing is we're recording this in december I mean, it was 44 years ago. That really does feel like history, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's so we're, we're very conscious of when we speak to people, we've got to think to ourselves, like when we were 20 and I spoke to people during the war, we thought they were old, you know, past it. And I'm sure they think about, about us the same, young people. I mean, it's interesting with the whole punk thing because it's been so much, uh, well, a couple of years ago particularly, all the retrospectives, the exhibitions, the V&A, <clears throat> all the kind of talks, the books and everything. And as you know, Barry Kane said, and if you said, you know, it was, only, it was a couple of years and a few people, really. Uh, it has been mythologised, you know, possibly even over-mythologised by people who weren't there. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, back to 76, I mean, it was quite mythic in a way, wasn't it? Because New Year's Day comes and you get off the new year to a rocket with a certain band called The Clash. And that, that, was, that, that was mad, that was, because, you know, it, we squeezed like 300 people into a club that held 150. I mean, yeah, so Susan, talk a little bit about that, because, you know, punk's famous for its sort of DIY ethos, and here, you know, at this rock, the Roxy Club, that was very much um, the case, wasn't it? You know, you said about That's you right. going to rush around uh, getting booze and knocking the stage together and all that sort of stuff, and... Must have been pretty hectic if you're putting these nights on just on the spur of the moment. It was, it was mad. And don't forget, 1977, January the 1st, nothing was open to get alcohol and stop the bar up because in those days, nothing was open. <laughs> and we found, as I said before, the cash and carry in the East End that we just got there at three o'clock in the afternoon, just before they closed to get beer again for company car. And, um, but it was quite evident by this time that we preferred running a club rather than managing a band. So we which were, can become extremely. So, so we tiresome. had no experience of doing either of them. But we loved it because it was putting on a show every night, um, setting it up. Uh, you're either successful or it was a disaster. Um, sometimes could pay the band, sometimes couldn't, but we managed and we scraped through. And um, and then, of course, you had all the so-called shocks creeping on because they could see the success that we had and they wanted a part of it. Maybe Andrew could do Yeah, it. so the Roxy itself as a club um, lasted for about two years, but you guys who set it up, um, that was quite a short time, wasn't it? Just three or four months. See, yeah. we call it our our time, which is a hundred nights only. But because the owners, the, the, the crooked barrister, he, he he could sniff that there was something to be had here. He he got other crooks involved, which he knew from the East End, and they brought in a manager who was uh, John McDonald. who's not a crook. He was just uh, around and about. I don't know how he got involved actually, but he then essentially took over, and then he ran it for another year, year and a half. But as far as we were concerned, it was all done and dusted. And right, and what a hundred days it was. I mean, you know, that word legendary or mythic is kind of overused. But when it's applied to the Roxy in that time that you were there, I mean, it's quite understandable why people would talk about it in that way. Now, I mean, listen to this. This is just a list of some of the bands who played there during your time. Generation X, The Buzzcocks, Chelsea, Wayne County, Jane County, uh, The Damned. 
The Jam, The Lurkers, Johnny Moped, The Only Ones, The Police, they did all right. Sham 69, Susie and the Banshees, Slaughter and the Dogs, The Slits, The Stranglers, Subway Sect, Wire, X-Ray Specs, XTC. That's just the ones that I recognise. There's a lot of others, they're probably famous punk bands that I didn't recognise. And of course, that wasn't it either. That was just the ones, you know, the, the, the better known ones. So, I mean, that's quite a roster. And, I mean, you know, you really were uh, squeezing them in, weren't you? I mean, this was a place that all the bands of that era, the punk bands, wanted to play. They wanted to be at the Roxy. I guess it was a combination of that, you know, wanting to play at the place where all these other cool punk bands were playing, and also the fact that there wasn't that much option because of the whole fallout from the Sex Pistols thing. Yeah, but they, but they had an alternative. I mean, we, were, we were getting tapes, because in those days it was a tape, or maybe a phone call in the post sent to the club because it was obviously reviewed in the music papers, just arriving out of the blue saying, will you put us on? Well, if you're I, a punk band, yes. I mean, we just had a very simple, because you couldn't go to Northampton or Bristol and go and look at them. It just wasn't possible. So we just said, are you a punk band? And they said, yes. And well, then you're on next week. Simple. It, it wasn't, wasn't conscious, but because it was early days, they did become the core, the early... The foundation. I mean, the adverts, gay advert, they came up from Torquay, I think, or somewhere outside Torquay. Yeah. They just rang and said, can we play? Of course you can. And, and it was electric. And she couldn't play, but she was just, you know, three called wonders. I think one of their songs, didn't it? And um, it's fantastic. And as I say, people used to turn up the, at the club. They come from school in their school uniforms go in the toilets, come up with all these amazing outfits that they created, you know, bin liners, uh, safety pins. Um, it was never, when while we were there, it was never gory, blood up the walls, all that nonsense that came after. That's not what we were about at all. Um, and um, up until April the 23rd, 1977, um, I mean, me and Angie physically got kicked out by René Albert. Well, tell us about that. I mean, you know... <laughs> You've made you've done this thing that's extraordinarily successful in its own terms, anyway. And uh, what happened? Some nights were really bad. We were counting pennies in a late night coffee bar in Soho or something. People couldn't pay the rent, uh, never pay the rent, and that's where the argument started. So maybe Andrew would like to. Well, take and that's why that. we had a bust up with the barrister, you know, because we had a, our idea of how things should be done. And it was a lot riskier. And he wanted us to put on disco bands and all sorts of things. He didn't get it at all. He just wanted to get the rent in somehow. And which he put up. And Andrew signed a contract for three hundred pounds a week, didn't you? Yeah, we that signed a contract for really a lot of money. It was a huge days. amount of money for for us. We're so naive. We thought we could pay it. <laughs> so we we paid the first few dates, which is just one night at a time. But when we got to a commitment, which is from January yeah. the first then the whole thing changed because we were responsible for, for that contract obviously we then had to start thinking about filling up the club seven days a week well that was a stupid thing to try to do you, no one ever runs a club seven days a week and there weren't the bands to fill it so within a two or three weeks we reduced it down to thursday fridays and saturdays which then obviously didn't produce enough to pay the rent and so the whole thing was spiraling out of control but the biggest thing that upset them was um I think we had the damned on a four week on a Monday, yeah. didn't it? And um, 
they all got, got quite mad on stage and Captain Sip was quite tall and the ceiling was polystyrene, you know, like horrible polystyrene squares or something. And he got his guitar with the, what do you call it, the yeah. end of it and smashed the ceiling and the whole goddamn ceiling fell down. Wires, live wires, and you had to run to the electric Ouch. cover and save lives, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so live cables are hanging the, out off the, the ceiling. And then we got a, a summons, I think, the, the next week, yeah. didn't we? Then we got a summons for like £5,000 to repair the ceiling. You've got to understand that's like 50000 now for a club that holds 150. It wasn't going to happen. So all that got into big arguments, threats and accusations. And eventually the whole thing wasn't looking too good. But at the same time, I had the idea of uh, why don't we record some of these bands and put out an album? Which, when I spoke to Barry, who was our partner, who who yeah, had yeah. a four-track thing about selling out, didn't he? Well, he had a four-track recorder, because <laughs> yeah. that's how I got to meet Barry. Because we used his studio, which is literally a coal hole, it was under the front of his uh, house. This they were squatting, and we used that to do the first band uh, demo. So I said, "Why don't you bring that down and start to <clears throat> record the bands?" And it landed up on Mike Thorne's desk at EMI, who produced the first Roxy album. And who went on to produce Soft Cell, Soft Cell The Shirts, many big bands. And so we did a proper record deal with a, and got some proper money, which was £10,000. It was a lot as an advance for a, not a band, obviously, but weren't a band, to a compilation album of unknown music of unsigned bands. Unbelievable. 5,000 of it went immediately on the hiring of the um, the up-to-date, hot shit, 24-track mobile recording studio. During that time, I was setting the recording up. We Rene, the owner, was threatening to kick us all out. And we and he said, if you don't pay by tomorrow, you're gone and all the rest of it. And so we we lied and cheated to him and said, yes, yes, no problem. We borrowed the money a bit here, gave him a bit there. Because we said, because we'd made our commitment to EMI, so we had to get that recording done. So we just so you you caught between a sort of sharkish landlord and EMI Records, who've dropped a huge amount of money on it. I mean, it's quite high pressure stakes, no? Yeah, it was a it was a high pressure stake, and uh, you know they didn't know we didn't tell anybody. We just kept pulling the wool over Rene's eyes because we said, "Oh, a couple more days to go. Just got to put the bands in." And then, you know, he can bugger off. So we got the recording and, and that was it. We we separated from from the uh, Rene and the Roxy probably about a week after the recording. And that was it. But we had the tapes. Yeah, well, that's really important, isn't it? We were talking earlier, you know, the thing about, you know, clubs, club nights, events. You can put a huge amount of effort, creative energy uh, money into creating a wonderful evening, a wonderful event, you know, or a festival. But of course, it's then it's gone. It's ephemeral, isn't it? So it is great, actually, if something uh, tangible comes out of that, which you can kind of sell, obviously, but also is like, you know, the memory of that time and that place is kind of captured. But um, obviously, the Roxy after your time uh, carried on, but um, not with the same spirit. I mean, this is interesting. This is a quote from Joe Strummer of The Clash talking about the Roxy later. And he says, uh, the only thing that could count as a scene is the Roxy, and the Roxy is a dormitory. The last time I went, I was feeling really uppity. I stood in the middle and looked around, and all these people were slumped around, dozing, and I threw tomato sauce on the mirror and stormed out, and I haven't been back there since. 
I don't think I will go back there. The sooner it closes, the better. That's quite damning. And, you know, if you see Julian Temple's film about the clash, which has got footage from that New Year's Day show, you know, with you guys, uh, it's full on. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it really captures the spirit, I imagine, of what it was like. Definitely no social distancing in the crowd. And the clash themselves are on full frontal attack form. And it sounds pretty terrible, but the vibe is like massively up there. Uh, so something obviously changed between that show and, uh, you know, his, his last visit to the club after you guys had gone. Um, but it did kickstart or help kickstart that whole, the thing which was called punk for journalists, for record labels, for agents. And it, you know, it became a national, then an, then an international phenomenon, didn't it, right? Yeah, because of, we got a huge amount of press, whether, you know, because of what we were doing, um, because what other bands were doing and forming, and I think they were beginning to get some tours in. Right. Yeah, but it was called punk. I mean, there's a lot of it was a lot of different sounds actually, wasn't it? A lot of different bands, really. There is no such thing as a punk band, actually, because if you listen to the Pistols, the Stranglers, I think the, damned, the Clash, the, the Damned, and Wire, you know, they come under this huge umbrella. They were just around at the time, but I don't see any commonality in the music. But if you had to say, you know which ones were punk bands, you'd say mostly the damned, I'd say, more I'd than say any the of them. The energy that they had is incredible. But, you know, again, it was a fluid umbrella. Well, talking about fluid, the other person who's definitely worth mentioning in the context of uh, you and the Roxy and his influence on punk, I guess, and on, you know, quite a few people in the punk world, especially the Clash, I guess, West London thing is Don Letts. He was um, he was the DJ at the Roxy uh, that you introduced. Is that right, Donovan? I knew through because he was like the um, manager, of the manager of Boy Boutique Boy Shop in Kings Road. They'd have a jukebox down there in the shop because it suited the atmosphere, obviously, and the stuff that they were doing. And he just brought his own records out, used to play them, and so all day he was spinning his own records. It was right across the board his music, so he had very broad taste. And when I booked uh, Generation X to do the Roxy and stuff, you know, I had too much of my plate to do anything. So I asked him, he said, will you play? He said, no, no, I don't, I don't play. You know, I'm not a DJ and no, I can't do that, etc." And And I, I was kept talking to him. I said, look, there's nothing much to do. Just bring some records down. Friends, and, you? and you're just playing to a few friends. You know most of the people around Absolutely. and about anyway, the faces. You know, it's only going to be 50, 60 people. It's just like a, a home party. <laughs> And he sort of said, oh, all right, then, reluctantly. And he said, on condition you pay for the taxi from where he lived, which was way down in South Forest London, Hill, into, right. into Forest Hill, South London, up into Covent Garden and back again so that he could bring with him 50 albums or whatever. But once again, not punk albums. There was no such thing. And he bought his reggae collection. So he bought a reggae collection and mixed it in. And he mixed it in with a bit of Stooges, a little bit of Bowie, a bit of Lou Reed. You know, you get the MC5, and a little bit of reggae. And that's where, because of my connection, you have this reggae punk culture clash. And also the reggae was a bit softer and smoother. You thought the thrash... I mean, see, because reggae was an alternative sound as well. Right, and so an important part of the whole punk thing, as we said, and with Don Letts obviously making his films as well, um, which made part of that whole era, uh, recorded part of that whole era, so um, for you guys, the Roxy is over and, you know, you've put all this energy and time, love, money, resources 
ideas and stuff into it. And then, you know, because of the issues with the landlord and, and money and all that sort of stuff, it comes to an end. I mean, was that was that devastating or, you know, to do all that and then for it to stop or be stopped from doing it? No, no I we, we really were so fed up. fed up with the whole thing. We had, you know, threats, we had pressure. <laughs> We had summonses delivered to our home in Streatham. Which, yeah, we, we, you know, we, we wanted to do something because we were working day and night. We were deciding flyers. We were booking the bands. We were getting the press, cleaning the place to sell. You know, it just went on and on, and, and with no financial backing at all. So by the time we got the record done with. We weren't all that sorry, frankly. I mean, that's that's kind of the story anyway, isn't it, counterculture? Just, you know, things start off underground and then they sort of gradually uh, go overground. It's always been that way, isn't it? Yeah. Not no, it's not uncommon, but, no. you know, the scene was growing. Agents were doing stuff. The bands were touring. It, someone even put together a Roxy Club tour, you know, of all some of the bands that weren't even playing there. <laughs> Um, well, some of those bands uh, went on to be pretty big. I mean, the Police, crikey! I mean, you know, the Clash, um, the Jam—they were pretty good, right? We didn't think so at the time. <laughs> I say some horrible things in that book about the Jam. Go on, tell. <laughs> they were a mod band. They weren't punks, which they were. But look what's happened. I'm sure they care. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen. Let's talk a bit about the book. So it's the Roxy, our story, the club that forged punk in a hundred nights of madness mayhem and misfortune. Punk rock was the ultimate anti-movement, anti-fashion, anti-rock, anti-establishment. Its bands consisted of players untrained in music looking to explode the heavy, overproduced rock of the previous generation, stripping music down to its core. The music was banned from every venue and club in the United Kingdom from fear that it might dissolve the remains of unity in the fragile political backdrop of the time. The Roxy Club stood alone in its wish to promote this music against all odds. It survived just a hundred nights, but during its short reign, cut through the pomp and self-satisfied operators of the music business, who finally saw that they had no clothes. This very personal book from the diaries and memories of this infamous club by Andrew Chesovsky and his partner, Susan Carrington, tells how it all came about, looking out from the centre of the maelstrom at the impact they were having during the most crucial hundred nights in punk rock music history. So <clears throat> just tell us a little bit how it came about and um, you know how you put it together. We were thinking about writing this book for a long time, but it was going to be from memory and stories and even researching ourselves online. But fortunately, discovered that a lot of... Um, material in our attic in boxes we didn't even know we had so players susan's diary is the most important thing because you know the the roxy book our story is written in sort of a diary form almost it starts from day one and finishes on day 100 and and that was really the backbone the skeleton of the book so that's why we sat down did the book 2017 16 we, 16, we had it uh printed we designed it we code laid it out obviously wrote everything uh, and we financed the whole thing even though we had um interests from two or three publishers boy were they slow and boring <laughs> i just couldn't take it that two years passed i just had enough that's, that sounds true to form well that's that's that was the, that's your whole ethos isn't it though anyway sort of do it yourself get on with it just well, we did it in a do-it-yourself style. That was the whole point. We can't hang around. We like to move forward. We're like sharks. Going to keep swimming. <laughs> keep swimming. Well, I mean, it's very much. It is very much uh, your story, 
rather than a full history, isn't it, Susan? So some people say, well, you didn't mention this, that or the other. The whole point, it's our story. It was, it's not a history of punk. No, no. People say, why didn't you mention this? Why didn't you mention um, that? But it's not about that. It's about us. And how yeah. it happened, how we enjoyed it, how we eventually didn't like it anymore, and how we eventually got kicked out on the 23rd of April, 1977. Yeah, but a sort of brutal end is, is apparent in the story, but of course not, not the end for you at all, as we're going to find out uh, in the next episode. Um, but Susan, when you look back over all those hundred nights, to the extent that you can remember them with all the chaos going on, is there one that, you know, sticks in your mind that you would have thought, hmm, that was it, that was the Roxy, really summed it up? I, I, th I think Johnny Thunder's the, the heartbreakers for energy and speed and the fact they wouldn't get off the stage till two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Oh, uh, and Jane County, uh, it was called Wayne County then. Fabulous, totally over the top. Um, oh, I love them all, to be quite honest. Yeah, the jam nights <laughs> Not the jam. Braid, that was not... Ten people, <laughs> not playing playing punk. Terrible. Uh, no. <laughs> what about you, Andrew? What's your peak uh, moment? Uh, it's the same as Susan. It, it would be the, the opening, the second opening night, I should say, which was with... Um, the heartbreakers. Great stuff. Well, we're coming to the end of this episode. We are going to be back with you again. But um, I wanted to finish up, actually, with another quote from the book because I thought it sort of, in a way, summed up, in some senses, the connection between nightlife, club culture, youth culture and the counterculture. Uh, and it says, um, nightclubs have been a fixture of urban life for at least a century. From speakeasies to cellar discotheques, they're the low-lit preserves of the city at play, a place to hold the night at bay. A club should imbue both intimacy and abandon, although the alchemy for success is unpredictable. The ingredients are simple, music, punters and alcohol. Countless night spots have succumbed to obscurity. Those back doorways and garish neon signs that once promised so much are long since forgotten in the relentless redevelopment of contemporary cities. Rare are the clubs that make their mark on history. Those few that have left behind an indelible imprint include the Cavern, the Marquee, Whiskey A Go-Go, Max's, Kansas City, CBGB's and the Roxy. So there we have it. Thank you very much, Andrew Chazowski and Susan Carrington. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. Andrew and Susan are an amazing couple. We're going to be back with the story of what happened to them, for them, with them next. And the amazing club that they founded and ran in Brixton, The Fridge, uh, which changed the nightlife scene of London and youth culture in a different sort of way than the Roxy. Do check out their book. It's a wonderful ride through 100 days and nights of punk mayhem. It's a terrific tale. And thanks to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. You can check us out at bureauoflostculture.com. You can also find all past episodes now on various podcast providers, Apple, Google, TuneIn, Pandora, Listen Notes, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual places. If you've enjoyed it, or this episode or any other, and you feel moved to leave us a review, we'd love that. And to share it with anybody else that you think will enjoy lost, half-remembered, secret, rare, forgotten stories from the counterculture and the underground. See you next time. I'm Stephen Perkins.